Well, it's good to be God's people together. I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 13. You know that we're missing some people when the pastor plays drums, when we're down to our fourth string drummer. But the thing that I'm reminded of, not just of what we sang, that we're invited to come to Jesus, I'm reminded that it doesn't matter if there's 20 of us or 200 of us, God is in our midst. We have reasons to sing, and he has something for us this evening as we lean in to his word, to his way, and to what he has for us. So we're having this random one-off message simply because this example that Jesus gives us of stepping up by stepping down has just been resonating on my heart And I think it is so vital for this moment in our life as a church and in our witness in our neighborhood that we can learn from Jesus to step up by stepping down, lowering ourselves for sacrificial action. Now that you're with me in John chapter 13, let's read. And this is right at the beginning of Jesus' last evening and day with his disciples, and this is a powerful embodiment of all that Jesus is about. Let's hear this familiar story together. It was just before the Passover festival. That's important. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. That's important too. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's really important. Verse 2. So the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put All things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Let's just pause and make sure we don't miss that. Jesus has this sense that he's come from God and he's returning to God, but he knows the path to get there is through the suffering for the sake of the world. He also knows that all of this. Authority has been given to him. He also knows that he's going to get betrayed and arrested and beaten and tortured. So knowing all of this, what he chooses to do next should be pretty important. What he chooses to do next could change the shape of the world. Not just his destiny, but the destiny of the world. Knowing he has all authority. Knowing The path to the cross lays before him, knowing that he's going to be betrayed. What does he do? He got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing, like his exterior robe. And then he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. 
So just pause and let the scene kind of sink in and fill in the blanks in your mind. It would have been a U-shaped table. It would have been low to the ground, not like the tables we have today. And the disciples are half reclining on one elbow, their feet sticking out just at a 45 degree angle behind them. They had already been eating. Whatever Jesus was doing should have been done way earlier. But now he's doing this very intimate and strange thing in the middle of the meal, having all power and all authority, knowing all this. This is what he's deciding to do. And just also imagine how quiet and awkward it was. Because in their day, Maybe some disciples could show their devotion by washing the feet of their teacher, but not this other way around. So just imagine he goes to Matthew, and he goes to John, and one by one, for how long? 60 seconds? Two minutes? Three minutes? Depends on how dirty and grody their feet are, I suppose. Times... Twelve? No one's saying anything until Peter breaks the silence and basically says, Are you for real right now? Verse 6, Jesus came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. That could be later, like in a couple minutes when I explain myself. Jesus, let me, or or Peter, let Jesus do his illustration, please. Or it could be later when Jesus actually dies. But Peter, you don't get it, but you will. Peter says, no, you shall never wash my feet. Are you serious? But Jesus looks at him and says, hey, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. You don't belong with me. You're not linked up with me. You don't get it. Then this comical retort from Peter, verse 9. Then, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. I want to be with you. I want to be in on this. That's ironic. Come the next conversation. But back to verse 10. Jesus answered, hey, those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is already clean, and you are clean, disciples, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. So when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned back to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher. You call me Lord. And rightly so, for that's what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have knelt down and washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. Nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. But now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. What a powerful scene.
I know it's familiar, but I don't want to lose the power in our familiarity. So let me ask you this as we get into it. King Charles has been king of England, the UK, for a month today. Here's my question. Do you think that he's mowed the yard at Buckingham Palace yet? No. It's the fall. It's probably cooler over there. Maybe they don't need a mow. Okay. So do you think that King Charles has done a load of dishes? Like in the kingly suite now. Like he's got a different gold-plated dishwasher and he's getting a feel for his new digs and his new role. You think he's washed the dishes, dudes? No? Okay. How about this? You think King Charles has that pile of clean clothes that we all have in that one corner of our room or on that one chair and he's finally gotten around to like folding them and hanging them up? You think King Charles has has done that? No? No? This is silly, right? It's silly, watch, not because it's silly to mow your yard or it's silly to do the dishes or it's ridiculous to put up laundry. It's not silly because of the action. It's outrageous and scandalous, and we can't even process it because of his role. King Charles has never probably pulled a cord on a lawnmower and pushed that thing up and down Windsor. It's not scandalous because of the ordinary tasks. It's scandalous because of the role with which someone like a king would assume in order to do these things. A king wouldn't do that. He's too big of a deal. Well, here's the problem for us today. We may not be kings, but if we're honest with ourselves, we'd much rather be a king than a gardener. And in Christian culture today, and evangelicalism in particular, Christians would rather be celebrities than be servants. And I think it's really fitting that this message is here for me and you this evening on like one of those weird nights at our church where we just have a low night. I think it's super important and even this is a parable of reminding us that doing little things with great love and humbling ourselves in order to keep the main thing the main thing in order to step up and do what needs to be done by lowering ourselves, by stepping down? What if our church, our family, our workplace, our neighborhood measured success not by celebrity status or crowds, but by sacrificial love and faithful service? What if as a pastor and a leader and a church, we measured our fruitfulness, our growth, our movement in our capacity to serve and not just our capacity to draw a crowd? What if we could step up and live, truly flourish for ourselves, for others, by learning to step down and lower ourselves? This is the example that Jesus gives us. John gives a weighty intro I made mention of in the first three verses. It was the Passover time, the time when the Jewish people expected God to move and act like he did in the Exodus. They were longing for a king to come. And then this king, Jesus, 
lowers himself and does the servant's job. We see in this weighty intro that he knew that his hour of suffering had come. He didn't have a lot of time and he lowered himself and tried to enact and embody the kinds of servant leadership that would change the world if his disciples would actually follow his example. And I love this weighty intro at the beginning, or excuse me, at the end of that paragraph. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is fascinating, and I didn't realize this until this week. John says one time, and one time only, that Jesus loves his disciples. And it's here. John writes that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that, that Jesus is a good shepherd that loves. We hear in theory and in a macro sense that God loves the world, that Jesus loves these people and has compassion on these people. But John says, hey, he loved them. He saw them. He knew them. That's the first mention. And I said earlier only, I'm pretty sure the only. Jesus loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. There's two ways you could translate it. In quantity, like to the bitter end, right up to it. Or in quality, to the utmost. Some translations may differ, but they're both right. Did Jesus love them to the end in quantity, to the time stamp? Yes, did Jesus love them to the quality, to the tippy-top uttermost? Yes. So our first big idea as we look at faithful, sacrificial action is this. Jesus-shaped love seeks the good of the other, even at cost to yourself. Jesus-shaped love seeks the good of the other, even, how about especially, at cost to yourself. What Jesus is doing here is showing them that I don't care about my reputation. I don't care about my ego. I don't care about your expectations of what a teacher, rabbi, big deal, King Charles should be. I don't care about the energy and the grossness of your feet. I'm going to show you what true love looks like. And in this big idea, I say Jesus-shaped. You could just as easily say cross-shaped because God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that this is what love looks like. Not that we loved God, 1 John 4, but that God loved us and gave his only son. It cost something. Jesus-shaped love seeks the good of the other. What's it cost? It's going to cost your ego and your pride. It's going to cost your expectations of what they should do in return for you because nobody turned around. Peter tried, but nobody turned around and said, here, Jesus, come on, man. Who's going to get your nasty feet? No, it cost Jesus any expectation of reprisal. Jesus served. Jesus stepped up and showed them what true love is by lowering and stepping down and doing the work of a slave, a servant. Understand that this kind of love that Jesus showed, that he loved them to the end, he loved them to the utmost, 
is the kind of love that he's enacting and asking them to carry on. Because that's what true greatness is, and that's what the world needs. We don't need more celebrities in the kingdom of God. We need more faithful servants. And so some of you say, man, but it costs so much. And I have a low balance alert on my bank app, and I'm really in danger of overdrawing. And this is why God invites us to come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me when you're burned out, when you're bawling, when you're losing and in danger of giving up, and you will find rest for your souls. For I am gentle and humble and lowly in heart, and we can walk the way together. So understand that God refills us and gives us the capacity to love enemies and others when we are in danger of overdrawing. God's not inviting us to step down to the point where we continually are walked upon by those who would seek to abuse and misuse us. But that's why God will refill us, give us the discerning wisdom to love well, because sometimes seeking the good of the other looks like a hand up and calling them up to see us for who we are and to elicit those wise boundaries. So I'm not advocating doormats. I'm advocating wisdom in loving like Jesus. And when you find yourself in a place where you're tapped out and overdrawn, would you place yourself in front of the one who is love so that he might refill you and give you the way forward? But understand that Jesus is embodying and enacting what real love looks like when he takes off his robe, wraps a towel around his waist, and says this, in all of its ordinariness is what love and service looks like. So what Jesus does here is important. At least three things are happening. What does Jesus do? The first is something ordinary. Imagine that you had sandals and you walked around the street all day and there was no concrete, no pavement, just dust. And depending on where you were in an ancient city, you could find bits of mule or donkey leavings or even someone who decides that their interior bucket slash toilet needs emptying. And so they don't have anywhere to flush it, so they toss it. And in the poorer parts of the city, that dry dust becomes a little muddy when you work in some organic um, liquids. And so when you enter into a house to recline at a table, when you've got all these pillows on this low-slung U-shaped table, you don't want to mess up Aunt Rosie's nice dinner pillows. So the first thing you do before you sit down and eat is someone will come with a basin like on the picture and run water over your feet and get the grode off. It was something ordinary. Was it gross? Yeah, it's not pleasant, but it's functional. 
We wash our hands before dinner because we use our hands. They would too. But they've got to enter into someone's home and get their feet washed. Sometimes children would do this for parents. Sometimes wives would do this for husbands. Some husbands said, yo, have you seen my toes? Don't touch those things. But sometimes they would want to out of severe and serious devotion. Some slaves could even refuse to wash the guests' feet because it was so gross. This was the lowest of the low. But it was also something that was anonymous. Yeah, it was ordinary. It was something they did every day. But how many foot washers get recorded in the reams and encyclopedias of history? How many Hall of Fame foot washers are there? How many dishwashers in the backs of our restaurants get prime time real estate on the evening news? How many Sunday school teachers that poured into you growing up get book deals and invitations to conferences? How many of us that faithfully serve and sort clothes and pray with our neighbors, sometimes they walk away and they don't even remember our name. But does it matter? Does God see it? Even when they don't? There's a song that has been a great, great blessing for me. And I'll probably listen to it this evening because our little church needs reminding and this little pastor needs reminding that it matters more about the God who sees us when we don't really feel seen and there's not 2,000 people breaking down the doors for the neighborhood church, that doesn't mean that what we do doesn't matter. Look at the first verse of this song. It's called Little Things with Great Love. It was written by several artists. My favorite version is this one by The Porter's Gate. You can find it on YouTube and in the streaming services. It's a collection of worship leaders and artists that gathered together in New York, and they wrote these songs for this community of people, the real, ordinary, everyday people. This is the first verse. In the garden of our Savior, no flower grows unseen, his, kingdom, his kindness reigns like water on every humble seed. No simple act of mercy escapes his watchful eye. For there is one who loves me. His hand is over mine. I love that Bud reminded us several weeks ago about how the little things we do for the kingdom matters. And I love this image that his hand is over mine as his hands and feet, whatever we do to bring more love and life and light of the kingdom of God, whether it's giving a coat away at the rock or placing our hands on a friend's back to pray for them and over them, his hand is over ours and he sees us when the world doesn't. This is a refrain later on in the song. Oh, the deeds forgotten. Oh, the works unseen. Every drink of water flowing graciously. Every tender mercy you're making glorious. This you have asked of us. Do little things with great love. Little things with great love. 
What Jesus did was an anonymous, ordinary act, but it was done with great love. He loved them to the end and to the utmost. The final stanza of Little Things with Great Love goes like this. At the table of our Savior, no mouth will go unfed. His children in the shadows stream in and raise their heads. And if you listen to this version by the Porter's Gate, I'm a music person, so you're going to have to bear with me. All the stringed instruments go nuts. And it's a noisy, loud din under these words. Oh, give us ears to hear them and give us eyes that see. And I love that choice because it's often the loudness of our world that causes us to miss those that need our mercy. It's in the noise precisely that we need to step out of our comfort zone. We need to step down from our own ego and pride and enter in to those who are in need. And so finally returning to the song, the last line gets repeated. It's this, for there is one who loves them. I am his hands and feet. For there is one who loves them. I am his hands and feet. It's something ordinary that Jesus does. It's something anonymous that Jesus does. And I just pray that we would be a church of faithful servants that are unknown by the world, yet known by God. We may be unseen in the conferences and the books, but we are faithfully serving our neighbor that we were washing the feet because we learned it from Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or exploitation. But he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. Which brings us back to that slide as to what Jesus does. Not just something ordinary, not just something anonymous, but something lowly. The earliest Christian hymn I just referenced, first, excuse me, Philippians chapter 2, was embodied that evening at the dinner table. One of the things that I tell people when they ask about our church, that I don't talk about that much up here, but I want to say, we follow Jesus' example when he does something lowly, and I think it's important that our church stays close to the poor. I think it's important that our church stays close to real people with real needs within our community and without. Because there's something about God's geography that tends to draw us out of our comfort zones, out of our bubbles, and it's good because once we step out of our bubbles of upper middle classness or suburbia or wherever the church in Dallas finds itself, once we step outside of those bubbles, we find that Jesus is on the other side. And when we did our series on the Beatitudes, I tried to convey to you that blessed are the poor and blessed are the mourners, blessed are the meek. Those are less about spirituality and more about geography. That if you're standing next to the poor and the poor in spirit, and if you're standing next to the meek and the mourners, the forgotten, those who are hungry and thirsty for things to be made new, you find yourself really close to the kingdom of God. 
You find yourself in God's geography, in God's bubble, where there's something about staying close to the poor, staying close to need, that gets you close to God. And that's why we love bringing people to the rock. That's why we keep doing so much at the rock. But even if the rock doesn't exist, we as a church need to continually look around and out because there's something that God does when we step down and away from our own ego and expectations. And yeah, it's going to cost us our stuff and our energy and our time and our money, but there's something about it that is so suffused and flush and saturated with love in the kingdom, even when it's messy. Peter couldn't go there. It was too scandalous. It was too low. No way could King Charles wash his feet. He hasn't had a pedicure in a long time. So no way could Jesus. But Jesus says this troubling thing about, man, if you don't get on board with this, you really can't call yourself one of my disciples. Which leads us to our second big idea. That to belong to me means to be washed and be with. To belong to Jesus, to be in Christ, is to be washed. What Jesus means there, and he says this, hey, you've had a bath You guys are with it. You guys are within the kingdom geography. You're in the zip code of the kingdom of heaven, okay? You're washed, you're in, you're with me, okay? You have faith and trust. You've hitched your wagon to Jesus. So for us today, understand that to belong to Jesus means firstly to put our faith in him. You call me Lord and you're right. To say Jesus is Lord is to say I'm not or this president's not, or this movement is not, but Jesus is. And so I'm going to orient my whole life around him, which is that second piece. It means to be with Jesus. If you can't do this, man, you don't belong to me. You don't carry the name. If you can't allow this service and then go and do likewise, you're showing yourself to not really have trusted me and to not really follow me. That's why Judas was not clean. By his betrayal and his, um, and his, um, his uh, compromising from the devil shows that he's listening to the wrong voice. He's hitched his wagon with the wrong train to betray God and his purpose. And he shows that he would never sacrificially love and serve. Instead, he takes So to belong to Jesus means that we are washed and we are with. A disciple of Jesus is someone who is with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus. Which is another powerful point that need not be missed in Jesus' example. So we looked just a moment ago, not just at what Jesus did. Now we need to explore how Jesus serves And the first way is indiscriminately. Judas hadn't left yet, by the way. And how many times did John say that he knew he was going to betray him? This is really important because you can be in proximity with Jesus and not actually be with Jesus. 
You can be in proximity to church and Christianity and not be in Christ. If it could happen for Judas, it could happen in our culture, which is why it's so important that we are faithful witnesses to who Jesus is and how Jesus serves because there's a lot of people in proximity to what they think is Christianity. And it looks like racism and classism and sexism. But Jesus still comes to them, washes them, and invites them to take up their cross and follow him. He still loved indiscriminately. In our church, we say that Jesus has rezoned our neighborhood. So now everyone we encounter is a neighbor to be loved, not an enemy or other to be feared, shunned, or hated. The homeless panhandler to that family member, as hard as it may be, is worthy of your indiscriminate love. How you do that is for you and the Spirit to discern and decide, because sometimes they may overdraw you. But to see them and to join them at the cross in prayer, indiscriminate, this is where we're called. He not only served indiscriminately, even washing Judas's feet, it's intimate, isn't it? How many of you have been in Christian spaces where we wash feet? Some of you went to that retreat a few years ago. Some of you have been around the church in some youth night or even in some liturgical churches. They, they have their bishops do this, and I think it's beautiful. This is commonly a Maundy Thursday practice. Maundy is from the Latin word mandatum, which means command. Later in John 13, he gives the command this evening to love each other as I have loved you. That's the command he gives, and this is the way he shows it. It's intimate. It's literally messy. It's relational. You don't think that Jesus and, um, and, and uh, Bartholomew had a minute? You don't think that Jesus and Matthew had a moment together? It's messy. It's relational. And here's the thing. Would you let Jesus wash your feet? Is it too intimate? Not to stress this analogy further than it needs to, but is there something he wants to wash, heal, help? But we want to go get a pedicure first. He can come to my house, but I've really got to clean up that laundry pile that Adam was talking about earlier. It's clean, but... I got to tidy up. Could we allow Jesus to wash our feet, to be known, to be washed? It's intimate. That's how Jesus serves. And he's invited us to be an intimate community that loves and cries and laughs and sings and worships together. How Jesus serves, number three, is incarnationally. We've used this word a lot. I love the idea that Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, but he made himself nothing and he took on the form of a slave, a servant. The language used when he took off his outer robe and then took it back up again 
is the same language that's used about his death and resurrection. John, if we were hearing that word in the original language, is underlying and foreshadowing. This is the God who takes everything off so that he might be one of us and know what brokenheartedness feels like and loneliness and forsakenness feels like. This is true greatness, is showing up, getting our hands dirty, and our kids need to see you incarnate real service. I had a friend years ago, I was in his wedding, and he said he had this great idea. For the first year of marriage, he'll never wash a dish, he'll never fold a shirt, he'll never put anything away around the house. And he said, in a year in, I'm going to go to that kitchen and I'm going to clean every bit of it up. And she's going to walk in and she's going to go, thank you so much. Wow. And he's telling us his grand plan. And all of us groomsmen had the same face that Kelly Moss has right now. And we said, are you insane? And he goes, trust me. Two weeks later, we got a text. Doesn't work, this plan. And we were like, yeah, dude, you think? Now he has two kids. And I just wondered. He has two daughters. And I just wonder. If he didn't get that message, if he didn't get that, they would have seen a man incarnate how... He cannot be bothered with ordinary things. They would have seen in their house how this man could not step up by stepping down and helping around the dadgum house. And I just think that true greatness for our children is to come and show them at the clothes closet, at the neighborhood table, that love is indiscriminate and service is what we do because Jesus said, go and do likewise. And we may not have them sit down and wash feet, but we need to get them into contact with real people and real needs and show them that this is what Christianity is synonymous with. Sacrificial, Jesus-shaped, put your own needs down for a minute so that you might lift up others who need help. This is what it looks like. So often as we're talking about marriage, and I realized this evening that actually in this room right now, there's probably a majority of us that are unmarried. But it doesn't go for just marriage. The idea, the Christian ethic, is when you say, well, who's going to serve me? The answer is you. And then that person goes, well, wait, if I'm serving them, who's going to serve me? The answer is the other you. The way a Christian community works, the way a marriage works, is that of self-giving love. And when you give of yourself and you feel like you're overdrawn, that's where God not only refills you, but the other community steps up to help you. This is how this thing goes. God is Trinity, relational, difference and distinction, being in relationship with the capital B and the capital R, self-giving and considering the good of the other, even above self. Our final big idea is this. 
that Jesus is embodying and exemplifying true greatness. And you say, well, that's what you've been saying all along. You're right. But I want to drill down even further and tell you that when Jesus says, hey, do you understand what I've done for you? When he later explains, hey, this is what I'm doing for you. He says the same word in our Bible is example, but in his language, it was pattern. I know that Rebecca Knight is not here, but you've been in her house and you've seen those needle points right over her piano in her foyer, right? She got a pattern, she laid it on top, and she threaded through what needed to go where in which color. She followed and traced the pattern, and she replicated that image in her own way. Jesus says, I've given you a pattern to trace. Go and do it like me. Trace the lines. Lower yourself. Give even though it costs. This is the example and the embodiment of true greatness. And this is the kind of love that will change the world. I'm going to close with a real-life example that changed a community. In April, I think it was, it was after Easter anyway, I went on a silent retreat in the area at the Jesuit Retreat Center, Montserrat. And so it's a silent retreat. I've talked about it to many of you before, and I'll say again, I survived, I promise. Y'all thought I couldn't make it, and I did. But we enter into silence on a Friday afternoon, and you really feel it at the meals when everybody's just sitting there in a room and nobody's talking. It's super weird. And everybody's facing the same direction because it's on Lake Louisville. So everybody's looking in one way, and I always thought, man, if somebody walked in from the street like their car broke down, they would just back slowly away and say, this is weird. So I remember at that first meal. I'm just kind of getting the lay of the land, and I see that some husbands and wives are doing this together. And then we go to our first group session in the chapel, and I'm Protestant, surprise, so I sit in the back row because I'm just trying to take in the feel for how this Catholic retreat is going to go. Well, in the row in front of me, the second to last row, one of these husbands and wives were sitting down. They were sitting very closely to one another, and I was directly behind them. And in the chapel, they were playing some instrumental music that, if you really listened, were classic hymns. So as we're sitting there, the woman in front of me, who's nuzzled up to her husband, turns her head back, and she smiles, and I hear her singing faintly, and she's singing the words of the instrumental hymns. I thought, oh, that's sweet. And also, it's not quite silent, is it? But that's okay. It's nice. It's sweet. So I just noticed her. I noticed her smile. I noticed her singing. I smiled back, and she just had this warm presence to her. We did the first session. We go to sleep. The next morning at breakfast, I sit near this couple again. And this time I notice that he is leading her, the husband is. 
And I noticed that she's not just sitting close to him in our group time. She's walking close to him. She has her arm crooked in his. And they're walking slowly. And the husband is walking slowly and patiently with her. And as they're sitting down at breakfast, because we're not talking and we're all facing the same direction, we watch as he begins to feed her. Then he takes the cup and he helps her drink. And then when she spills, he takes the napkin and he gently dabs the corners of her mouth. It took me 12 hours to realize that his wife was cognitively disabled. We find out later that she had had an accident, a trauma, and that she could not speak, but she could sing. We find out later that they had been married for 44 years. And at the end of our retreat, you get 15 to 30 seconds to share as a group 15 to 30 seconds, a grace that you received from your time. Most people shared about their encounter with Jesus in stillness. And most people added at the end how touched they were by watching this couple. Later, when it was the husband's turn to share a grace, he thanked us for our smiles and our kindness Meanwhile, the rest of the group is bawling. We never got his name, could not tell you what he did for a living, could not tell you they're in their 60s. All the accolades or the trophies, if he excelled in his career, if he's a PhD, if they're millionaires, could not tell you one thing. But I can tell you that his patient service and love for her marked me. And everyone else in that room. And then in the 30 seconds we had to talk, so many people with tears in their eyes shared how they were a grace to them. And I had this idea, who serves the servant? Who serves that husband that will go home and feed her dinner again? And I thought, the foot washing one. The foot washing king serves him. And I thought about the vow that he had made and modeled and carried for 44 years. And I had this thought, I think, from God, the spirit whispering, he made a vow to them too, that he would never leave them nor forsake them. He'll show them how to love. He'll show them what real love and service looks like. So the question's, I leave you with are these. Will we let Jesus see us, wash us, restore us, fill us? He is the servant that will strengthen us in our service. The second question to sit with How will we follow his pattern and do unto others what he has done for us? How he stepped down of his own ego and sense of entitlement and celebrity 
and how he served those he loved. Indiscriminately, ordinarily, the person that can't love back, the kids that won't affirm you in the way you want to be affirmed, the husband that hasn't lifted a finger, how can we go and show costly, sacrificial love? Because we learned it from the foot-washing king. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together amongst family, brothers and sisters united in the love of Christ, devoted to following the example of Christ in our neighborhood, family, workplaces, and world. Our world is starved for community. Our world is starved for intimacy. Our world is starved for a true picture of love. May we do little things with great love, not caring who sees, knowing that you're with us and you see, and we will be blessed by doing what you've asked of us. We pray this through the spirit of the living God who keeps us awake to your purpose and aligned with your kingdom. As we go forth into our neighborhood, may God give us grace to serve indiscriminately, to love all, to make peace. May the spirit of truth keep us awake to what Jesus embodied and exemplified, that our words may carry his good news and our lives may bear the shape of the cross of the one who took the form of servant and who lives and reigns now and forever. Go in peace.